1970, I want to set the stage for this by giving you that timeline. 1970, so for a reference point, I was a year old. I don't know how old you were, if any of you were even here. But in 1970, Carl F.H. Henry wrote an essay entitled, The Barbarians Are Coming. He subsequently gave a series of lectures on that subject about the troubled times that we were living in in 1970 and what he saw coming. And this is the first part of that essay. We live in the twilight of a great civilization amid the deepening decline of modern culture. Those strange beast empires of the books of Revelation, Daniel and Revelation, seem already to be stalking and sprawling over the surface of the earth. Only the experimental success of modern science hides us from the dread terminal illness of our increasingly technological civilization. Because our sights are fixed on outer space and man on the moon, we cannot see the judgment that hangs low over our own planet. We applaud modern man's capability, but forget that nations are threatening each other with atomic destruction, that gun smoke darkens our inner cities, and that our near neighbors walk in terror by day and sleep in fear by night. We sit glued to television sets, unmindful that ancient pagan rulers stage Colosseum circuses to switch the minds of the restless ones from the realities of a spiritually vagrant empire to the illusion that all is basically well. We are so steeped in the Antichrist philosophy, namely that success consists in embracing not the values of the Sermon on the Mount, but an infinity of material things, of sex and status, that we little sense how much of what passes for practical Christianity is really an apostate compromise with the spirit of the age. Our generation is lost to the truth of God to the reality of divine revelation, to the, content, to the content of God's will, to the power of his redemption, and to the authority of his word. For this loss, it is paying dearly in a swift relapse to paganism. The savages are stirring again. You can hear them rumbling and rustling in the tempo of our times. Again, 1970, 53 years ago, how prescient was the insight of Carl F.H. Henry. In 1988, he wrote a book called The Twilight of a Great Civilization, revisiting some of those themes that he first wrote of many years before. In his foreword to the book, he said, half a generation ago, the pagans were still largely threatening at the gates of Western culture. Now the barbarians are plunging into the mainstream. And that was 1988, a year after I graduated from high school. If that was true in 1988, how much truer is that in 2023? And how do we live as God's people effectively, not just surviving, even though that's the title of this series, but doing more so, not just barely getting by, but thriving as God's people in this sojourn that he's called us to live? How do we do that effectively? That's going to be the content of our talks over these next several weeks together. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would so clearly speak to us in your word that we would sense real communion with you. Lord, we have so many questions and we're hungry for understanding and insight. We need wisdom desperately. We need encouragement and strength. In many cases, we need conviction. We need to be challenged. 
we need clarity and truth that can only come from you. Father, as we gather together today as your people, as we think about, and I, I pray, Father, guided by your Holy Spirit, think rightly about who you are, what you have said, how we should live, how we reflect you rightly, how we finish well with patience and endurance, how we glorify you as we have sung about with our lives. Father, I pray that you would give us answers. Father, I pray you reveal yourself. I pray that we would see you. We'd see you more clearly revealed in your word and in the person of Jesus today. Father, teach us some lessons about living rightly. Prepare us what is to come. As your children, as you guard us, as you discipline us, as you prepare us, Father, may we live well in light of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to turn your attention to two passages of Scripture this morning. The focus of our text over these next several weeks is going to be from the book of Daniel. We're not going to go through the entire book verse by verse, but some sections of the book of Daniel to try to glean some understanding, some answers, some wisdom about how do you live in troubled times. So if you're not familiar with the story of Daniel, I hope this will stir up your appetite a little bit to pursue that a little bit more on your own, to study and understand the context of this. Babylonian people had taken captive God's people and taken, as we begin the book of Daniel in the first chapter, the best of the best out. Daniel and his comrades were young men. Some commentaries say they could be as young as 15 or 16 years old. So by the way, that's just a little reminder that if you think you can't do what Daniel did because you're too young or because you don't have enough experience or enough knowledge, enough training, forego all that thinking. God did this with young men. Not just with the seasoned, wiser, older men. But as they were taken into captivity, we can learn some lessons about how do you live in a culture that you don't fit in anymore. And not only do you not fit in it, it's opposed to you. It's antagonistic towards you. Surely you've been paying attention to the shifting tides of our time. It's not like it used to be. The world that we live in is not like it was or as we wish that it was. But we have to look rightly at the times that we're living in. Look at Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read the first seven verses. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded... Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, before I speak to that context, you're saying, well, what does this have to do with me? 
I mean, this has got to be more than just a history lesson, right, of ancient Israel, ancient Babylon, and the difficulties that were political and social and cultural and religious. Yes, it's far more than that. Because while the stories of Daniel and his companions are true and real, they also foreshadow a future reality that's just as real. Now, you and I have not been taken siege by an enemy from a foreign country, but we surely have been taken siege. From the moment of the fall in the Garden of Eden, the people of God have been living in exile. Whether that was Noah and his offspring and their offspring, Abraham and all those who came after him under that covenant, or us now as God's people purchased by the blood of Christ, bearing his name in all the nations, this, this world's not our home. We live in exile. Peter, in his epistle, in chapter 1 of verse 1, makes this plain, obvious. Everyone understood this in the first century. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You and I live in a modern exile. A reminder that this world's not our home, but we're just passing through. And on this sojourn, God's given us a purpose. God's given us a way that we're supposed to live. And it's not going to be easy. It's not supposed to be easy. And we're not going to fit comfortably. We're not supposed to fit comfortably. And that's the theme of our message today. There are four critical realizations that I think are necessary for any believer today in the times in which we live. Four realizations that are all centered around our identity, not as citizens of this world, but as exiles to it, waiting for a world that is to come. And I want you to challenge yourself. I put these in statements. And maybe as you take notes today, if you're a note taker, or you have my notes in front of you, in the first page of the bulletin, maybe to grade yourself, or pass fail yourself, check mark yourself. Can you say these four realizations are true of you today? The first critical realization is this, that I know who I am. That I know who I am. That I have a right sense of my identity in Christ. A child of God. A member of God's household and family. A part of His church. The bride of Christ. A member of His body. A, a functioning part. Do I know who I am? Consider the challenges to the first exiles, Daniel and the three. They were challenged in these three areas. First, they were challenged in the literature and language of the culture. What better way to change the way that a person thinks than by re-educating them? They asked for the best and the brightest, but what they wanted to do was spend three years indoctrinating them. Imagine the influence those pagan Babylonian teachers had on those teenagers. Imagine the influence of three years of intentional retraining, re-education, causing them to see the world through a different lens, causing them to reject their own history, their own story, their own past, the truths that they have known and have been taught, their view of God, their view of man, their view of sin, their view of redemption. Everything about their identity that they had been taught and believed as citizens of Israel was now being re-taught to them. You draw your own conclusions. The power of re-education, literature, and language. And then they challenged them on the point of their lifestyle. 
It's not just an innocuous statement. It's very telling that what was provided for them to eat and drink was different than what they were accustomed to. This isn't just a matter of dietary issues or concerns. It isn't a matter of physical health. I, I read something once, some commentary, that Daniel and these men were very concerned about their physical health and well-being and to be sturdy and strong. No, no, that's not what this is about. This is not a commentary on nutrition. This is a commentary on lifestyle, on the food and the drink. What was culturally normal for the Babylonians was an affront to the culture and lifestyle of God's people, Israel. And then even their very names were changed. We probably know the three better by their Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Even Daniel's name was changed. You know, there was a time where parents were very intentional about giving their children names that had meaning and value. I think that time is passing to a large degree, at least in some quarters. But many of you, I hope you know the significance of your name. I, I hope even more so that your parents gave thought to that, what they were planning for and praying for as they named you that but consider these names for just a moment the name Daniel means Elohim is my judge Elohim Hebrew for God the name Belteshazzar may Bel protect his life a pagan God Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious the personal name of God in the Bible we know is Yahweh but Shadrach that means Aku is exalted another Babylonian god. Mishael means who is what Elohim is, a name that praises the God of Israel, while Meshach means who is what Aku is, a name to praise the false god of Babylon. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. Abednego means the servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. Everything that was being done to these young men was an attempt to change their identity, their sense of self. When you live in exile in a culture that not only denies your God, but hates your God, they have two aims for you. Either assimilation into that culture so that you become like they are, re-educated, readjusted to that culture, even your self-identities change so that you fit there well, either assimilation, or as we see by chapter 3, if you will not assimilate, then annihilation. Then we want you gone. We want you out of the picture. Because it won't be very long until we'll be introduced to a fiery furnace or a pit of lions. Change their thinking. Change their way of living. Change the way that they understand their God and worship Him. Thinking, living, and worship. And you've changed who they are. And that was the attempt. Do you know who you are? Now, of course, this presupposes that you have some deep roots. Daniel and the others had deep roots. They had deep roots in the Word of God. They had deep roots in the promise and covenant of God. They had deep roots in the commands of God, the expectation of God. They had deep roots in the culture of God's people. They knew who they were, that even when their situation changed even when exile was imposed on them and they were taken out of that world and placed in this one they never lost the sense of who they were who they were do you know who you are do you know who you are in this world second critical realization is this that i know where i am do, do you know where you are now this seems like an obvious question now i get it it's not so obvious as i as, as it may first appear 
But again, let's revisit the theme of what it means to live in exile. To know that this world is not your intended, permanent dwelling place. Everything about your life will not be discovered here. All the satisfactions you seek won't be found here. All the things you hope for won't be realized here. This world is not our home. We are sojourners here. Consider quickly some of these verses. If you can write them down, then great. If not, listen. 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us when we're away from our bodies, where will we be? At home. At home with the Lord. Romans 12.2 says we're not to be conformed to this world, to this age. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says our lives are hid with Christ in God. That's our real reality. Colossians 1.13 says we've been transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. There are two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world is still in darkness. The kingdom of his world is light. 1 John 3.14, we've passed out of death into life. And Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Hebrews 13, 14 reminds us, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Do you know that you're living in exile? Do you have a keen sense that this is not your primary home? That you shouldn't fit well here? that you shouldn't assimilate here, that there should be distinctions about us that don't change? If you're not aware of the surroundings in which you live and how much they've changed, let me read to you a section from his book, Being the Bad Guys. Provocative title, I like it. Being the Bad Guys. How to Live for Christ in a World that Says You Shouldn't by Stephen McAlpin. Listen to what he said. He said, only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy the solution to what was bad. Rather than being on the wrong side of the law, we were the law. Christian morality was assumed, and it passed mainly unchallenged. The cultural, legal, and political power structures affirmed Christians. Then something changed. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys, one option among many, a voice to be considered but not to be followed unquestioningly. If Christianity wasn't for you, fine. If it didn't work for me, fine. Most of us still think we live in that world. Most Christian books, sermons, and podcasts assume that we do. In many ways, we've only just begun to work out how to live well as one of the guys. But the problem is that's not where we are now. Incre increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. The tide shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as no longer an option, but a problem. The cultural, political, and legal guns that Christianity once held are now trained on us. And it happened quickly. The number of those professing faith has fallen dramatically. The number of those who reject the faith they held on to into their late teens has risen dramatically. The seat at the cultural table that we assumed was ours for keeps is increasingly being given to others. We're on the wrong side of the history, the wrong side of so many issues and conversations. If this were a Western, we'd be the guys wearing the black hats whose appearance is accompanied by the foreboding soundtrack. It's come as a surprise. We're not sure how it happened. We don't like it, and we don't feel like we deserve it, but we're the bad guys now. How are you going to live in that world as a follower of Christ? How are you going to adjust to that reality? And though you may not feel that tide on you as keenly as Stephen McAlpin does, 
which just for context sake, he's a pastor in Australia where that tide has swept over them already. It's coming. It's surely coming even here. How then will you live? See, this reality doesn't mean that you and I just raise the, the white flag. It doesn't mean that we surrender and cower in fear. It means that we rightly face the reality of our situation, which, as the author of Daniel both notes and the author of Hebrews notes and Peter notes in his epistle, is all by the sovereign will of God. He knows who we are. He knows where we are. And it's by his sovereignty that he has allowed these things. So understanding this reality and being honest about it means that we readjust our attitudes and the course that we're on. I love this illustration in a sermon that Alistair Begg gave about facing the times with confidence, looking ahead to the future, not just looking with fear and, and trepidation at what's happening now, but being confident of who we are in Christ and what God has promised us. He said in the 1920s, Lord Rife helped to establish the British Broadcasting Corporation and served as its first director general. He was a severe man from the highlands of Scotland. As the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 1960s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Lord Rife, the world is changing and the BBC no longer needs to continue religious programming. People are no longer interested in religion and the church is becoming obsolete, he said. Lord Rife, who was six foot six, told this young man to take his seat. And then he stood up and said, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And that's true of everything we see in this culture that opposes Christ. This morning in our prayer time, we read from Hebrews chapter 12 about the plan of God to shake that which could be shaken, but the foundations of his kingdom cannot and will not be shaken. They will stand. But do you know where you are right now? Number three, this third realization. Not only knowing who you are and where you are, but do you know why you are? Can you answer definitively the question, I know why I am? This is a reminder I have to give myself sometimes. Both as a, as a person, as an individual, facing the, the stress of what I see in this world, and sometimes just having to put the iPad down or turn the TV off because it can bear no more bad news. I, I can no longer consider the implications of things that I see. Sometimes it just seems overwhelming. And then also as a as a husband, protecting a wife and family and a parent and a grandparent and thinking about the future and that my time is relatively short, but that theirs is just beginning. And I have to be reminded, again, that God is sovereign. And I think of Esther, who didn't cower at the challenge in front of her, nor become embittered about why she was forced to live in such a difficult period of time but instead came to the realization that it is for such a time as this that God has allowed us, caused us to be here? Do you know why? Again, we've been in exile ever since we were thrown out of the garden. But our role and responsibility as sojourners in exile could not be clear according to the Scriptures. So track with me just for a moment. I want to make two statements of, of who we are and why we are, and I want to explain the implications. The first one is who we are collectively. As a church, as a body of Christ, as the people of God, God's design for his church is that the church be an embassy of heaven. That the things heaven declares, the church declares. The things that happen in heaven happen in the church. That the authority that exists there would also exist here. 
that God's plans and purposes would be declared there. If you're not familiar with the concept of an embassy, it's an officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another nation. That embassy represents and then speaks for that other nation. It's a proxy, and that's who we are. So you think about our role collectively as God's people. We exist to declare God's judgments. Thus saith the Lord. That's the role of the church, to speak against that which is evil, to declare this is true, universally true, objectively true. The church exists to offer passports to his kingdom. How can I leave this kingdom of darkness and enter this new kingdom with Jesus as king? What is this good news that would free me from my sin and my enmity with God, my opposition to God, and the future judgment of God. How might I be forgiven and have eternal life? That's what the church does. And when we give the gospel, the good news that through Jesus Christ, God demonstrated his love for sinners, that those who believed in him and trust in him and seek him for forgiveness, repent of their sins, and give their lives to him, become his sons and daughters. That's the good news, and that's our passport we give, and we declare that passport through baptism. The church gathers to agree and declare the judgments of God, to celebrate the promises of God. Why do we sing these songs? Why do we read these scriptures? Why do we repeat these themes again and again? Because as a church, we're being reminded, we're being recalibrated, we're being refocused on those things that matter for us. And the church scatters, whether by its own design and will, or whether by God's, because persecution scatters it. But the church scatters to make disciples of the king, and citizens of an eternal kingdom. We're an embassy. And if the church is an embassy of heaven, then the second part is also true, necessarily so. As its members, you and I are ambassadors for the king of heaven. If the church is the embassy of his kingdom, then you and I are his ambassadors here, serving in that embassy and through that embassy to this world. We're ambassadors to the king of heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We are ambassadors for Christ. That's a sweeping term, an umbrella term for believers. We're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that's the why we're here, to represent him in this world, to declare his excellencies, to speak his judgments, to offer his gospel, and to invite people into his kingdom. So we live as witnesses in word and deed to our relationship to the king. We speak the truth of the king. We give the invitation of the king. And as long as we live in this foreign world, we maintain our allegiance to the king. The church as an embassy, you and I as ambassadors, and all this points to number four, the fourth realization we all need. I know whose I am. I know whose I am. I'm not telling you anything as a Christian that you probably don't already know, but I want to remind you of its importance this morning. To have a conscious realization on the regular that you are not your own, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God. This is who we are and what we are. If you're a Christian, you belong completely to Christ. How important is this theme for Christians, Christianity, the history of Christendom? The well-known Heidelberg Catechism, which has taught generations of believers the foundations of what it means to be a follower of Christ starts with this question number one. Question number one, what is your only comfort in life and death? 
Question one, what's your only comfort in life and death? And this is the answer, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. How do you answer those four questions? Do you know who you are? Your foundational identity? Do you know where you are? And your relationship to that foreign country? Do you know why you are? By God's design, in His perfect timing, without mistake or error, to make you part of an embassy so that you can function well as an ambassador? And do you believe and trust in whose you are? And if you belong to Christ, you will forever belong to Christ. This relationship is eternal. So you have these four understandings, these four critical realizations and we'll revisit these sums. We look at these men and how they face some of the great challenges of their time and how it speaks to our challenges. But if you start with those four realizations in exile, in chapter one of the book of Daniel, it led to one critical resolution. Four realizations led to one resolution. And it's in verse eight. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, before you just sort of mentally, maybe even subconsciously, dismiss this as not a very big deal. I, I don't really see the significance of this. He wouldn't eat the food, wouldn't take the drink. I want you to consider more deeply what's at stake here. Up to this point, Daniel didn't seem to resist. We have no record of his resisting what was asked of him. We don't see him refusing to go to the classes or learn the language. As, as far as we know, and I'm making an argument from silence, which is never wise to do, we don't know that he refused to be called those names, even though surely they didn't address each other in Hebrew by those names. But now, he draws a line. Now he resolves to. He, he makes a commitment, a resolution that I won't violate this. Why draw the line here? And in a word, the reason is sin. It's sin. To violate his conscience, which was rooted in his culture, his family, his faith, his training, his relationship with his creator and king and savior, to violate his conscience, and even worse, to violate the clear commands of the God who'd covenanted with him, is sin. And it's still true today. When you and I violate our conscience, it's sin. When we violate God's commands for us, it's sin. And Daniel had two issues that made eating this food they offered to him a sin. At the very least, it was this. This food that was being offered to him was unclean. Living under the Old Testament code, civil code, 
religious code, the cultural codes of the Old Testament, to eat these things was forbidden to him. And it was a mark of differentiation, of distinction between Israel and those other nations. It was unclean. But perhaps more importantly, this meat that he would have been offered to eat had a religious connotation to it. It would have been sacrificed to idols. And to receive it and to eat it was to declare some fealty, at the very least gratitude, for these false gods that provided it. And Daniel said, this is where I have to draw the line. Where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line with this culture? And I'm not trying to be rude or aggressive, certainly not offensive to you. But there may be some of you in this room who don't draw the line anywhere. What's culturally normal, what's socially acceptable, what's typically practiced is how you live. And you adjust your ever-moving line accordingly. Where will you draw the line and on what basis will you draw the line? And your conscience, if that's your guide, your conscience is only as healthy as your relationship with the Lord is healthy. It's only as healthy as your knowledge of the Word is healthy. It's only as healthy as your surrender to the guidance of the Holy Spirit is healthy. It's only as healthy as your desire for holiness is healthy. Where will you draw the line? So Daniel refused because he knows that sin does something, and he uses this word two times. It defiles. Sin defiles. And Daniel understood this. My usefulness to God and his purposes and my ability to endure and persevere faithfully to him for him to the end are both tied to my holiness. Let me say this again. Daniel knew that holiness is a prerequisite to usefulness by God. And it is the taproot. Do you understand what I mean by taproot? It is the deep root that anchors any tree into the ground. That, that central root. Holiness is the taproot of endurance and perseverance. Do you get what I'm saying here? Christians who compromise tend not to endure. Christians who compromise again and again and again are not useful ambassadors of Christ. In fact, they're negative ambassadors. They paint a wrong picture of the kingdom. They paint a bad picture of the king. And instead of fulfilling the primary purpose which God has given them, they do the opposite. And those who practice sin don't endure as followers of Christ. And so Daniel knew this. And he says, I will not defile myself because personal holiness is critical to me. And again, as we look at this compromise, it seems not very much. Here's a meal. Here's some meat. Here's some wine. Take this. This is what we do. This is how we live. This is our culture. This is what's normal to us. It's no big deal. This is not primarily about the mathematics involved, but consider this equation. One meal. No, let's say three meals a day. Three years. Three times 365 times the four young men involved. How many compromises 
does that entail? And how many meals does it take till there's no longer an offense? How many sit-down dinners does it take until I'm no longer affected? Till my conscience no longer troubles me? Till it's seared as with a hot iron, like Paul wrote to Timothy? How, how long does that take? How long until the compromise has rubbed off my spiritual edge? And one compromise invariably leads to another. And one compromise in one area invariably leads to more compromises in others. And soon, relatively soon, in terms of the chapter and verse by chapter 3, they're going to be challenged to renounce their very faith. They're going to be commanded to abandon their God. They're going to be commanded to embrace a false God. There's no way that they could have withstood the pressure that was to come if they had compromised then. Compromised people don't stand up well to the enemy. They just don't. And so there's one big lesson. I, I titled this sermon series, Lessons from Exile. And here's your lesson number one. You and I can resist a corrupting culture by refusing to compromise. Let me give you a little bit of a backdrop before I land this sermon playing today. What drove me to these thoughts that I've shared with you this morning is I thought through this sort of message series in my mind, I had these kind of big ideas that I wanted to express clearly and succinctly and bring down to some level of personal value and practicality. And I kind of started with this. Let's look at what the culture is doing and let's see how we respond to it, how we react to it. We will not bow before your false gods. We will not give in to your lies. We will not embrace that culture. But before we ever stand strongly, publicly, before you and I ever face down the giant or refuse to bow before the idol, we've got to deal with who we are personally. It starts with us personally. Compromised people don't stand well. Compromised people tend to go with the flow. Compromised people are already being assimilated, and assimilated people don't tend to fight the cultures that they live in. They tend to justify them, identify with them, sometimes even embrace them. So our first responsibility for all of us when it comes to facing the culture that we live and living well in it is to diagnose compromise in our own lives. This is not a series or a message because I lack the time this morning about how you might do that diagnosis, but let me at least offer you this. You're never going to be able to properly diagnose yourself yourself. This requires the work of the Holy Spirit in us. This requires the honest, sincere prayer, God, search me, try me, know my heart, see if there's any wicked way in me. God revealed to me some of the most important spiritual exercises you will ever do is alone before God when you have the time and the desire to pursue this, the honesty and integrity to want this and sit down with a pen and a paper or an iPad and a magic pencil and Ask God to show you. Begin to write down those things that he shows you, that he convicts you of in your own sin, your own compromise. Your first responsibility is to diagnose. I know I've shared with you some chunks of books, and Cecilia always tells me, you read too many books to people and too many sections, we can't keep up. Sorry. Here's another. This is such a great little essay. 
C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called The Inner Ring. And the reason I share this with you is because I think it so much speaks to our culture, particularly our professional culture today and our educational culture. There's just something insidious about us that if we're not so so guarded about it, if we're not so careful about it, intentional about it, this will affect us too, this desire to, to fit in. This desire, you know, there's just something about us. We don't like to be unliked. I mean, we've, we've, we're building this whole cultural system around likes. And so we'll post these little videos because we want people to like it. We'll, we'll do these things on TikTok because we want reactions. And, and we post these pictures. And we're building this sense of, of culture and identity around approval. Well, in his article, The Inner Ring, it describes the experience and desire of people at all stages of life to be accepted in what he called the inner ring. Not to be outside of it, not to be weird, not to be outsider, not to be different, but to be part of that inner ring. To feel excluded or out of it, that's the miserable feeling. But the desire to be in it can make you say things you wouldn't say or do things you wouldn't do or, if left unchecked, become something you otherwise never would be just so you can fit in. He says that the desire to be on the inside affects your work, your political affiliations, your relationships in the community and the church, and your own sense of self. Here's this quote, just a few from the article. I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the ring and the terror to be left outside. This desire is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. Mainspring, you know, that, that spring in your watch that makes it work if you have one that's not digital. The desire is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. It's one of the factors which go to make up the world as we know it. This whole pell-mell of struggle, competition, confusion, graft, disappointment. And it is one of the permanent mainsprings. If it is one of the permanent mainsprings, then you may be quite sure of this. Unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life from that first day in which you enter your profession, or I would say your school, until the day when you're too old to care. That will be the natural thing, the life that will come to you of its own accord. Any other kind of life, if you lead it, will be the result of conscious and continuous effort. If you do nothing about it, he said, if you drift with the stream, you will in fact be an inner ringer. Later in that article, he says this, of all the passions, listen to this statement, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. That is the nature of compromise. And so often it is that subtle but insidious pressure, so hard to define and impossible to measure of just culture around us, the people that we're around and the job that we work in, the people I go to school with and what I see on television and the media is putting this pressure on me to be that and not be different than that. What are some symptoms of compromise for us? Well, Compromise typically begins with something that attracts you, something that gets your attention, something that you feel that you lack and so you begin to desire it. Second stage is usually something like this. It's justification. We start making reasons in our own mind and rationalizing why the wrong is okay. And we usually do this because of the desire, as if desire justifies anything. Is that not the world that we live in today? 
if I desire it, it must be okay. You can't tell me what my desires are because love is love. We've been conditioned for this. So that any desire that I have, because it's real to me, must be acceptable to you. Not recognizing the Bible describes our desires as so broken and so destructive. Attraction, then justification, and then indulgence. The restraints are removed. The conscience is hardened. We justify it for ourselves, and so we embrace it. And then we begin to do this. We begin to redefine what wrong is. We begin to call evil good and good evil. Does this not look like what we see collectively? Well, it's also true of us individually. Attraction, justification, indulgence, and then redefinition. What once was evil is now declared good. So as you begin to pray and evaluate and ask God for his evaluation, what should you do when you discover compromise in your own life? You probably know the answer to this. This is like one of those Sunday school answers. If you get this one wrong, you need to start all over again. What should you do? Well, first of all, before you answer, I want you to consider the church addressed in Revelation chapter 2 at Pergamum. Let me give you a quick case study. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Listen to the word. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This is a culture that is corrupt, so corrupt that in Pergamum they call it Satan's throne is there. That's how pervasive was his control and influence. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. People were martyred there. That's how serious were the times. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So what should you do? You've become corrupted. You've become assimilated. Your sexual mores and normalcies are the same as the world you live around them. You do what they do. You watch what they watch. You have sex out of wedlock. This is all normal and practiced by you. You have been corrupted, or as Daniel might have said, defiled. What should you do? Therefore, repent. Repent. If you and I have been corrupted by the culture, if we've been compromised ourselves personally, there's only one right response, and that's repentance. Finally, I want to direct you to this. Why do we do these things? Did God put us here simply to test us, try us? Are we simply to rage against the machine? Is that our calling, or is there something bigger and better at stake here? Is there something more on the horizon? Something worth living for and shooting for? The answer is emphatically yes. And the author of Hebrews tells us about this in Hebrews chapter 11, about the better country that God has for his people. If, if we're just sojourners here if we're in exile here and this is not our home then what is hebrews 11 gives us some good insight i start with the account of abel and enoch and noah and abraham and sarah all summarize in verse 13 these all died in faith not having received the things promised in which you could put in implied yet but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. 
Why did they persevere? Why were they faithful? Why were they obedient to difficult things? And why did they live in ways contrary to the world around them? Because they were strangers and exiles and they knew it. And they were looking for a homeland. Verse 10 of Hebrews 11 describes Abraham specifically. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He wasn't simply looking for a better place for his family to live or to build his business or his life. He was looking for something everlasting. Verse 16, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. They represented him well, for he has prepared them for a city. If you'll listen, if you'll read, if you'll think on the things God is saying, you will see that God's doing the same for us. He's preparing you for a city. Verse 32, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. Something better for us. This is the hope we have in Christ or something better. So we live in light of what he's promised. We live for that which is better. And we know who we are and where we are and why we are and whose we are. And we resolve to not defile ourselves here. I read you the intro to that essay, some 53 years old now, The Barbarians Are Coming. Let me conclude with his conclusion. Thus saith the Lord is the only barricade that can save our unheeding generation from inevitable calamity. When all is said and tried, modern man's alternatives are either a return to the truth or revelation, even to the Bible as the unpolluted reservoir of the will of God, or to an even deeper plunge into meaningless, meaninglessness and loss of worth. In the twilight traffic snarl of a great civilization, the church needs as never before to be a light to the world and to shelter the moral fortunes of human history from crippling collision. To hold the road for Jesus Christ requires authoritative charting, clarity of vision, and divine enabling. The church is here at the crossroads. Open the Bible again. Our mandate is his word. The church is here called to a living exposition of the truth of revelation. The barbarians are coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Let the church that is here come now with good news, with the only durable good news, and come in time. Let's pray. Father, as we pray, even being able to acknowledge you as our Father grounds our hope.
that we are your children and you will not forsake your own. You love us. You call us by name. You have named us as co-heirs with Jesus Christ, our Savior, King, brother. Father, you have placed us here in this time and this context and this culture as you see fit. We are not our own, but we belong wholly to you. And that is our hope in this life. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful ambassadors and collectively as a people, we would offer the hope, the solace of an embassy that says flee that kingdom and come here and find life, find forgiveness, find peace, find hope, find joy, find the one that made you and loves you and created you for himself and for eternity. Father, may we resolve. May we have that commitment to be resolute in our pursuit of holiness. May we resolve to not compromise. Lord, our first challenge in this world is not to slay every giant but to first make sure that we walk with you. And a compromised Christian, a compromised church is far worse than a compromised culture. Lord, may we resolve to not defile ourselves. May we desire to live holy lives. And may that resolution come from a right understanding of who and why and what and where and and you, Father. So, Father, begin in us. May we begin with you. Father, as you reveal, may we repent and be restored. Father, use us for your purposes and for your glory. Christian, would you spend this next moment or so in quiet, seeking God, asking God to speak to you and show you, reveal to you, from his word to convict you in your heart of that which is sin where you perhaps have already compromised or been compromised and I pray that you would respond rightly with repentance if you're here this morning and you're not a believer yet I painted perhaps a dire picture of the world that we live in but I hope I've also painted somewhat of a beautiful picture of what God has promised to come for those who are His. And that's good news today. For those who would be cynical and skeptical, hopeless even, that this world is just in a downward spiral and there's not a thing you can do about it, but just suffer in it. Make the best of it. Do what you can while you can. And there's so much more. God has called us to live in a way that honors Him. We are on the winning side your faith will be vindicated. Jesus Christ will be made known to the nations. And we have an eternity to enjoy His goodness. I invite you, no, no, I, I implore you, as an ambassador of Christ, be reconciled to God.
Why does the Bible say you need to be reconciled? Because sin makes us the enemy of a holy God. To disregard Him, to disobey Him, to deny Him His rightful authority in our lives puts us at eternal odds with Him. And those odds bring eternal judgment. But you can be reconciled to Him. You can be forgiven. You can be treated by Him as if you never sinned. You can be treated by Him as if you were fully righteous with no sin at all in you. How is that possible? We cannot unsin. We cannot begin again. But we can be born again to a new life by the power of God's Spirit as we place our faith in Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life for our sake, who died as a sacrifice for all of our sins so that we could be forgiven, who rose to life so that we might be justified, made right with the Father, and have new lives. Be reconciled to him. Don't finish this life. Don't exit this world as an enemy of God. The consequences are horrific and worse than I could possibly describe, even imagine. But be reconciled to him. Know him now. Choose him now. Trust him now. Follow him now. Lean on him now. Love him now. Enjoy him for forever. Father, I pray you would move some to salvation today. You'd move some to greater faith today. You'd move some to repentance today. You'd move us to action today to be your people without compromise. This I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.